south of the Mason-Dixon. This is the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. Here is your host, Brian McClanahan. Welcome back to the Week in Review at the Abbeville Institute. This is your host, Brian McClanahan, and this is episode 328, covering the week of October 3rd through October 7th, 2022. Glad to have you back in the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter like our Gab page and our Facebook page. You can now search for that, Abbeville Institute. We're back on Facebook. Also, our YouTube page, which is an invaluable resource. Everything we do there is free of charge, and you do get lectures. You get this podcast. You get our Abbeville U videos. You can click on that little super thanks button under the videos. If you like them, you can throw a few pennies our way to help support more videos. So it's a win-win. The more money we get in, the more we can do. And that's a reminder, you know, we are approaching the end of the year. And if you like the Institute, if you like the podcast, the website, the programs, all the things we do, much of it free of charge, the mobile app, which you can get on the website, or just look in your, uh, your Apple Store or your Google Play, all of that, all of those things cost money, right? So your financial contributions do help us keep all a lot of these things free and the things that you do pay for we try to reduce the cost because we are a nonprofit organization so uh, the Abbeville Academy right we do have to pay for uh, the service of that so if you purchase a class at Abbeville Academy it does cost $15 to get the class but uh, regardless um, we do these things because we want to educate the public and our YouTube channel is free of charge but if you like all of that consider a tax-deductible donation to the Abbeville Institute it is, again, tax-deductible to the full extent of the law, so you can go to our webpage, abbevilleinstitute.org, this A-B-B-E-B-I-L-L-E, institute.org, click on that Donate button, and you can donate monthly, annually, or a one-time gift. We are approaching, again, the end of the year, so get in those 2022 taxes, that tax-exempt donation to us. I will be sending out more calls for donations as the year moves on. We are going to be having a digital newsletter this year. So if you're on our email list, if you go to abbevilleinstitute.org and you give us an email address, you get on our email list, you will get that digital newsletter, which uh, some we will send it out to uh, to some people via mail, but everybody's going to get it on uh, via email um, if you're just on the email list. So go ahead and get on that. It's also how we let you know about our forthcoming events, conferences, anything we're doing, our Daily Dose of Dixie. We do have a new conference coming up. Uh, October 14th, it's a Friday. Now, here's the cool thing about it. If you miss it, it's on Zoom, right? So if you miss it, there will be a replay. You'll get the link in a replay, so no big deal. If, you, if you've got to work, you can't make it. We we uh, wanted to do it on a weekday to see how this works. We're going to do more of these, again, a little bit longer conferences coming up in 2023. This is a trial run to see how it goes, but we might do them on Saturdays. Uh, it is, you know, a lot of people are busy on Saturdays, football or family gatherings or all kinds of things. So we decided to do it on a Friday, see how it goes. Uh, but we are going to have some events coming up in 2023. Check on the events page at abbevilleinstitute.org. Click on that uh, page that says Abbeville Academy. That's how you get our classes. Lots of great stuff out there. Click on that shop tab at abbevilleinstitute.org. Uh, get our logo and all kinds of cool stuff. This is the way that um, you get involved with the Institute. And of course, make us your preferred charity on Amazon Smile. You can donate just by shopping at Amazon. Uh, we do appreciate all your financial contributions. If you like the podcast, 
rate, review, and subscribe to it on uh, on Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave it that five-star review. Leave it that text review. If you like these videos, comment on the videos, whether it's the podcast or our lectures or Abbeville U videos. That helps bump the algorithm. All of that stuff is important. And uh, if you want to contribute to the Institute, you want to send us an article, submit it through the website, right? I, I get them. You can uh, submit it through the website and uh, we review them and decide what we're going to publish. But we do appreciate all of your support, financial, moral, or otherwise. Um, we do uh, try. We do this for you, right? I mean, this is this is about the Southern tradition. It's about something that we think is again essential for modern society. What did the South offer America that people can still relate to? That can still be valuable for American society? And um, I think we do a very good job of that. I, I, look, I mean. We are, as I've said on this podcast before, facing Mount Everest in shorts and flip-flops and trying to, to mount the summit, right? I mean, it's, it's difficult. Uh, the Southern tradition is now the evil other of everything in society, everything in American society. If there's a boogeyman, it's in the South. If there's a bad guy, he's Southern. This is the way it is, right? And there was a, a piece that came out of the Atlantic recently. Uh, I talked about it on my own podcast yet, uh, uh, for next week, right, as I'm recording this. Um, it'll be out next week, uh, but there's a piece in the Atlantic that's just completely ridiculous. The title is "The United States of Confederate America," and the evil is the South, right? I mean, it's, it's everything that's evil in America came out of the South, and all these Northerners are duped by it. Well, we have a lot of people in the North that listen to this podcast, that read our material. A lot of people around the world, because they recognize the South and the Southern tradition is more than just the evil other. It's just that these people are psychopaths and they have some real fragility issues and they can't understand that there's something valuable in the south now i would say even that piece actually says there's valuable stuff in the south but the political stuff no 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 that's not valuable just the stuff that we like is valuable but not this stuff uh, we would say it's all valuable and it all has a a use in modern american society uh, the st- I mean, again, the political tradition is valuable. There are parts, of, as I said on this podcast for years, we're at 327 episodes, so I said a lot on this podcast. But, you know, the South is like a rose bush. There are thorns in it. The Southern tradition, I should say. There are thorns in it. There are things that, uh, that are uh, a little bit uncomfortable in, in the South, or even a lot uncomfortable in the South. But you don't hack down the whole rose bush because you don't like the thorns. Right? You smell the roses and you think, this is worth worthy of preservation. Some people have called the South a garden. There's weeds in the garden. It needs to be cultivated. But you don't, you don't uh, you know, uh, till under the garden because there's some weeds in it. You let it grow and you let it flourish. And this is what we try to do on a regular basis on this particular podcast and at the website. And so again, we appreciate all your support. We've got, I think, about 10 episodes left this year uh, that we're going to be doing. And um, so still some time, but I'm um, just you know, kind of letting you know the, the end of the year is coming. And uh, we are going to be asking for contributions. This is the time of the year we do it the most. So don't be annoyed with us when we do that. Uh, that's something that we have to do as a nonprofit. We have to raise money or we cease to exist. And so we need your financial support. All right. Let's talk about the material for the week. We had some really good stuff this week. I think some fantastic articles. I know I went long there on a commercial for the Institute, basically. But this is a way that we promote the Institute through the podcast. So um, it's not just about the articles. It's about what the Institute does and what it means. 
Um, so I want to start with the piece that ran on Friday, in fact. And it's by uh, Chase Steely. He's doing a nice job of reviewing uh, Davison's The Attack on Leviathan. And I want to talk about the first part of this essay because it's about American heroes. Now, in 2012, I wrote a book for Regnery, Regnery, uh, generally just Regnery Gateway, not Regnery History, Regnery Gateway, The Politically Incorrect Guide to Real American Heroes. And one thing that I found fascinating in writing that book and when it was going through the editorial process, the editing process, um, one of the publishers said, look, if you're going to include Southerners in it, you need to include Northerners. And so a recommendation was made on a, on a couple of people. And as I read through this essay on Davison, that really rang true with me because essentially what was being said there is that you can't have national heroes unless they're regional heroes. And so, of course, one of the northern heroes was Chamberlain, who was a great man from Maine. I mean, there is nobody more magnanimous at the end of the war than Joshua Chamberlain, a man who had been blasted through the hip, right? I mean, this, this was a guy that suffered uh, because of the South, but recognized the valor and heroism of his opponents, and demanded that his man stand at attention as Southerners walked by. These were soldiers that deserved respect. And I can guarantee you that Joshua Chamberlain would have been fine with Confederate monuments. If that man, who was shot, could admire Confederate, Confederate soldiers and think that Confederate monuments were okay. I mean, we don't have any evidence that he ever said that, but in his actions, um, he certainly seemed to be someone who would support that in the South, Right? If that man can do it, then these little pink-haired dopes that run around saying we need to get rid of Confederate monuments could support them too. Could live in a world with Confederate monuments. May not support them, but live in a world where they exist. But you see, we don't have that anymore. And regional heroes, as Davidson said, have to be your national heroes because they embody the values of those regions and then people will think they're important. And then you do create this broader perspective on these people. Lee did become a national hero at one time. Um, I've mentioned this before, 1940. I, there was a calendar that was given out by an insurance company. And uh, it was hanging in my parents' house for years. And on when you got to January 1940, what did you have? Well, you had this this Northern Insurance Company recognizing the birthdays of Jackson and Lee, right? I mean, they were there. Because this, this calendar went out across the United States and even into Southern homes, and so they thought it was important to recognize that these people were national heroes, that Northern, a Northern Insurance Company could recognize the valor and heroism of a couple of Southerners. Of course, it also had Lincoln's birthday in February and Washington's birthday. And Southerners recognize Lincoln as a hero. And this gets into that reconciliationist period in the late 19th century and early 20th century when it was thought, okay, well, let's put, let's put aside the real sectional antagonisms. Southerners will say that Lincoln was great, uh, that he was a great president, and he did what he thought was right. Northerners are going to say, well, we don't think secession is legal or valid, but 
we know Southerners were doing what they thought was right and that they're heroic people and we should recognize them as well. And so that, that spirit of reconciliation is really what's at stake now. Reconciliation is the process by which the South is integrated back in the Union and Southern culture and Southern society becomes an important part of American culture and American society. That's what the left and the progressives, even conservative progressives, don't like. When I say conservative progressives, that's an oxymoron, but uh, this is what the Republican, Republican progressives, right? This is what they don't like. They don't like the South being integrated back into American society because of the traitors. These are the bad guys. And they have to be purged from polite conversation and American conservatism. So when, when Steely talks about this, um, and he talks about heroes... He says, Davison notes the impossibility of a national hero from the era of secession, war, and reconstruction. And even in his time, quote, George Washington grows even more faint and far away from most Americans. Seeley says, it's laughable to think the mob will be satisfied on a diet of butternut alone. Washington's time was federal, not consolidated like ours, as Davison quips. We have progressed or degenerated from a time when a man could be father of his country to a time when we are the babies of the state. Herbert Agar argued in Land of the Free that Jefferson has fared better in American respect than Washington, but Davidson isn't buying it. Mr. Agar's take aged well nigh as good as the guacamole in the last and that seven-layer casserole at First United Methodist Annual Summer Fish Fry, evidenced by the Hemings crock of DNA spit and the current goings-on at Monticello. This all makes Davidson's comment on Agar's Jefferson thesis more prescient. He writes, quote, We have no sense of the Founding Fathers' personal presence, although we do see... Uh, do preserve the houses they lived in and the beds they slept in and pause to stare at a monument in wistfulness or boredom before we finger the map that will direct us on our four or five hundred miles per day. We no longer name children, places, institutions for them, but do occasionally use their names for things that represent them, like hotels. Of not many counties in the United States can it be said, as it is still said of certain counties in the Old Southwest, that they are still voting for Andrew Jackson. So Davidson's correct about this, right? You can't name anything after a founding father anymore. That's impossible. These people are gone. And so American heroes no longer exist. And again, I go back to that 2012 book. It's why I wrote it, because I really thought that there was a... we American heroes... Well, I say this. American heroes do exist is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's Martin Luther King. It's uh, Barack Obama. It's, uh, it's people on the left that are recognized by the left as being the embodiment of America. That's who the heroes are on the left. That's who American heroes are now. You can't have Thomas Jefferson as a hero because... He is a racist slaveholder. Same thing with Tom, Same with George Washington. Of course, no Southerner. I mean, Davison's right. No Southerner. It may be for a time. You had a brief period of time around the centennial that people actually thought, uh, you know, Link, uh, Lee and, and Jackson, these are great Americans. Um, but, you know, Davis never had that, never had that attraction. It's why we did a, a video for the Abbeville U 
uh, these little five to seven minutes. In this case, it was 10 minutes. But a video from Jefferson Davis's uh, descendant, Bertram Hayes Davis, um, that talks about Davis, the American, the statesman. It's a great video. And it's very informative. And I, I mean, he gets into the point why Davis should be recognized as one of the great men in American history. The South was certainly part of America. The Confederate States were certainly part of America. These were Americans. These were members of the United States government for years and simply decided to have self-determination. We know it didn't work out for them, but they were certainly part of that. And because of that, anytime you talk about the South, well, it's stained with slavery and treason. We know the South is bigger than that. We know American heroes are bigger than that. And that's why we do what we do at the Institute. It's why we, it's why we spend so much time trying to expand out the Southern tradition beyond four years of war. It's why we talk about 1930s Southern philosophy and history. Because these people are as much a continuation of that Southern tradition as, say, Lee was a continuation of the Southern tradition of Jefferson in Washington. I mean, there's no way around this. There's a continuity between all these things. So the, the Southern tradition, and, and I agree with, with Davison and, and Steely, um, that this is a very difficult thing to come up with an American hero. In fact, he concludes in this piece on that subject. He says, where does that leave us? Davison thinks there might be some unwritten law on the subject, quote, which could be stated as follows. To be an American hero, a man must be a sectional hero. No true sectional hero can be a true or complete national hero. This leads him to believe, quote, that the only kind of natural, really national hero we can have ought to be a hero who embodies the federal conception. The federal sphere will accommodate the statesman, but not the hero. Who embodies the federal conception, meaning real federalism, regionalism. So we can have our heroes that were real regionalists, people that really believe in the federal republic, the federal union. That's what we can do for our heroes. And I really like this because, again, this is what we do on a regular basis at the Institute. So that leads back to the piece on Monday that kind of bookend together nicely. And uh, this is a talk by Marco Bassani at our 2004 summer school. And, you know, gosh, approaching 20 years ago now. But the title is Southern Resistance to the European Concept of Sovereignty. This is something Bassani has talked about on this at various conferences we've had, we had him on for an Abbeville, uh, an Abbeville Academy lecture on his on his book, his most recent book. But um, the European concept of sovereignty is different than the American concept of sovereignty, and the state, the European centralized state, in some ways, is different than the American concept of state. Though when Jefferson writes about states in the Declaration, he's certainly drawing a comparison between the state of Great Britain and the states in the United States, which would be the state of Virginia, you know, state of North Carolina, South Carolina, Maryland, Delaware, Georgia, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York. I mean, all these are states, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Rhode Island. All these are states, right? And, uh, you know, New Hampshire, all states. And so the European concept, though sovereignty is different. I mean, sovereignty came from the center. Sovereignty came from the king. We know that the French Revolution was in direct conflict to that. 
they even said it in their in their Declaration of Rights. But Americans had always believed that sovereignty was from the bottom up, that there was certainly a popular notion to it. And as Jefferson said in the Declaration, you know, the uh, legislative power is incapable of annihilation. So because of that, uh, even if the central authority abolishes your legislature, you still have it. And this is what was happening in the period leading up to the war. So this modern conception of state uh, this is European conception of the nation state is really antithetical to the American expression of what those things are until you get to the 20th century. When we start talking about the United States, not the United States, and that becomes much more prominent, the centralized power. And it really begins again with Lincoln's victory in 1865 uh, in the, at the end of the war. I mean, this concept of the centralized nation state becomes very important at that point. So again, because we have these different concepts of unity and what it means to be a, a federal republic or a national republic or a nation state, uh, when you have Davison saying we can't have a national hero and Bassani saying, well, uh, that's because America is not really uh, a centralized European state. These things work well together. All of the stuff that we do fits together in some way. Uh, you just have to you just have to see it, right? And so I really like this talk. I mean, it's, it's a great talk. Uh, and if you want to get into the deep philosophy of it, right, get into the weeds on some of these things, Bassani is very good for that. And then we had some, some pieces this week on a couple other things. One thing, we do have a, a summer school lecture up, A Tale of Two Monuments. This is Tom DiLorenzo at the summer school talking about Abraham Lincoln. And uh, what I mean by that is, you know, he's talking about how we have this Lincolnian America. It's something Don Livingston talks about a lot. But, you know, look, Lincolnian America works because for the, for the centralizers, for the establishment, because it does establish a very powerful centralized nation state with a strong executive that can make decisions from the top down. And... Lincoln's monument is a symbol of that. I mean, Lincoln is sitting there in Washington, D.C. in his American Parthenon. And uh, we go to worship this monument, just like you would Athena if you were in Athens. And you're worshiping the state. You're worshiping Lincoln's concept of American authority and the United States. And that concept of authority in the United States is completely opposite of what the founding generation wanted when it came to uh, power, state powers, powers of the federal government. We know it because they said it. But Lincoln's monument is a reminder that the center is the most important thing in American society. It's a reminder that the center is everything in American society. And that's when you know we have Al, ben Al Benson writing on October 6th, we've been lied to. He says, much of what we've gotten from our history books has been wishful myth. Those who are the victors in wars and other world situations get to write the history books in which they make themselves look good and their enemies look bad. 
The bad things they've done are either ignored or swept under the rug, while their enemies' faults are magnified tenfold. So this goes back to monuments, symbols, history itself, what Bassani was talking about, what Steely is talking about, what Tom DiRenzo was talking about. The victors get to put up the monuments. He says, Arthur R. Thompson in his book, To the Victor Go, the Myths and the Monuments, has noted that a lot of this sort of thing he has written, quote, in, case, in the case of the American Civil War, the above is the case for both sides of the conflict. Both have rewritten history and set up monuments to some of those best forgotten. Worse, there is too much concentration on the battles and not only politics and influences of these events. I'd have to mostly agree with him here, as Benson says. Over the last years, I've noticed that lots has been written about the battles and the real reasons for those battles ignored. And the real reason wasn't slavery, contrary to what most history books tell you. Now, of course, um, Thompson, I don't know if he's not being really self-aware, but uh, Southerners did write a lot about the war, and they did write a lot about their monuments. But um, you know, he says that both sides have rewritten history. I'm not so certain the South really rewrote it. We know the North did. We know the North was rewriting the history of the period and writing it to fit their agenda. Southerners like Davis are saying the same things before the war, the exact same things. Benson says, as for the South rewriting history, given the Northern proclivity to lie about the reasons for the war, some of that is understandable. But again, I wouldn't say they actually rewrote it. I would just say they published what they had already believed. Mr. Thompson wrote, quote, We will concentrate more on the northern aspects of the U.S. history rather than the southern, simply because it was the northern influence that won out and still dominates our thinking today. Well, that would be a surprise to uh, this dope who wrote this piece on um, the United States of Confederate America, right? Because he was saying, no, the South has won. Well, I mean, here is Thompson saying, no, it really hasn't won. It really hasn't done anything to win. But simply exist and tell another side of the story. So this piece was really good. I liked it. Um, again, uh, just a fantastic evaluation of where we are in modern society. And then the last piece of the week, another one, another great one by Brandon Meeks, The Rainmakers, short little story. I'm going to read this because one of the things we try to do at the Institute is not just the political stuff and the military stuff and the economic stuff, the culture war. We want to have something that's positive. And what I love about Brandon Meeks, he's been on, on our Abbeville U, uh, I'm not sorry, not the Abbeville U, on our uh, Abbeville Academy material. He, we had him on for a storytelling uh, seminar. What I like about his writing is it it's real, right? I mean, this is something that if it's not real, people are going to be turned off by it. They're going to, they're going to see it as corny, and uh, they know it's not authentic. If it's authentic, well, then you get it when you're writing through it and, and reading through it. And this is what I see every time I read one of his pieces. And so let me read this one. It's not long. It's called The Rainmakers. He said, Uncle Dude and Aunt Laura lived across the field beside us when I was growing up. 
They were both between the two world. They were both born between the two world wars, and lived through the depression. Dude was born at the foot of Mount St. Helens. Laura was born in the same room where she died in the Arkansas Delta. They had lots of odd superstitions and remedies, partially because of folklore and partly because folks just want to believe that Providence is the sort of thing that can be nudged into one direction or another. Dude only got haircuts when the moon was full for fear of going bald. Aunt Laura wouldn't sweep the floors on a windy day. Quote, that's how one digs up the past. Dude never drank a drop drop while he ate and only drank lukewarm beverages of any kind. Cold drinks shock the stomach and cause tumors, he said. Uh, he said his daily avocado and honey sandwich went down dry. I don't know how many times I had salt thrown in my face as she cooked, or how many times she made me turn around seven times and spit when I presumed on good fortune. I remember at least once I was sent home because I told her she couldn't know who'd die next from peering into a pan of red-eyed gravy. But mostly I remember the copperheads hanging from the crabapple tree. In our part of the country, you can't hardly turn your boot heel without kicking up a copperhead in the late spring and early summer. The short vipers are ill-tempered and territorial, not at all neighborly. A copperhead little bigger than an earthworm is venomous enough to kill a child and hospitalize a grown man. By the time I was six or seven, I had been instructed on how to identify them and dispatch them with a swift or sturdy stick. With a switch or sturdy stick, excuse me. In addition to an abundance of mean nests of no shoulders, we had long periods when when the rain was lean, and it's hard to grow peas and corn without rain. One dry season, I saw Uncle Dude take five copperheads he'd killed and hang them in the crabapple tree by their tails. Then here came Aunt Laura throwing salt at the tree like she was scattering chicken feed. What's that do, I said, knowing every odd goings-on at their house had a purpose. To make it rain, Dude said, looking at me incredulously like I'd just asked why a dog wags its tail. I was half scared to get close to the tree even as much as I like crabapple jelly on a hot butter biscuit. I don't care anymore for being struck by a dead snake than I do a live one. I don't, that don't make it rain, I said. Aunt Laura stopped, pitching, uh, pinching salt, and stared at me for a minute. I don't think that she was angry as she was interested in other methods. How do you, like it? How do you make it rain, she said. I can, I replied. Well, hush then, the them snakes won't. It was, it'll rain just, as, just to wash off the meanness. I didn't say anything else. I walked back to the house and told my grandparents. I just laughed. Granddaddy then snorted and said, Well, I reckon it won't be going fishing tomorrow. And he didn't. It rained for five straight days. Just a fantastic little short story that gives you an idea of life in the Appalachian region, life uh, in uh, in the rural south. A really fascinating piece of southern culture. And again, this is something we do on a regular basis to the Institute, so... Um, if you do like what we do and you want to give that tax-deductible uh, donation, just go to the website, click on that Donate tab, or check your email. They'll be getting more emails from me uh, instructing you how to donate. Do all that stuff because it's so important for us to keep our mission going. We need financial support. All right. I will see you next week. Until next time, good day. Good day.